the holidays are times when, at least to me, it somehow feels okay to eat an unlimited number of desserts. You kind of get a pass for a few weeks. Companies that sell us those desserts know that this time of year is gold, and they sell the heck out of it. Inside the Snedler Hershey's Kiss is the big, big taste of chocolate. Hershey's Kisses, that little mouthful of chocolate everybody loves, wrapped in all the colors of Christmas. Inside this little Hershey's Kiss is the chocolate we all love. That's a 1979 commercial from Hershey's, which did bring to America something that many of us fell in love with, milk chocolate. To understand how that happened, you have to understand Milton Hershey, who didn't just create a taste or a brand, he created a town. Nancy Kane is a historian at Harvard Business School. She has written about Hershey. She's the author, most recently, of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, welcome back. Thanks for being here. It's a great pleasure to be here, Kara. So uh, tell me a little bit about what the candy business was like uh, right around the time that Milton Hershey was trying to get into it. This is the late 1800s. Sort of what's the landscape of candy in the U.S.? So the landscape of candy is perhaps most easily captured by your listeners thinking about Laura Ingalls Wilder Mm -hmm. and Pa Ingalls, right, walking into the general store and buying lemon drops from a barrel or some peppermint sticks from the general merchant, right? And bringing them back in a little brown paper bag as a extra special treat. So candy and sugar, right, the real most important ingredient in candy, were relatively scarce and, in general, luxury items for people to consume. Hmm. And that really began to change slowly in the late 19th century, partly as a result of the proliferation of mass manufacturing, the the slow, but then with building steam, the rise of a consumer economy. But it's still candy, you know, in in machines, candy at counters in supermarkets, candy everywhere we go, in bowls, in offices, or in workplaces, that's all in the future. It's completely unimaginable, right, in the late 1800s. So the creation of chocolate was not the first thing that Milton Hershey did in the candy business. And in fact, I was, I mean, I think of Hershey's as very successful, and it is, but this was a guy who went through bankruptcies. Like, he was a not a successful candy maker, uh, like, from the get-go. Not at all. He's, he's, his story in many ways is, what does the mileage of failure teach us, right, as an entrepreneur, as an innovator? And... Um, Your listeners may or may not know that he was born in Pennsylvania, in the dairy country of really south-central Pennsylvania, not far from Lancaster. And so he grew up in a relatively poor family, tried all kinds of schemes to make his living, settles on candy at a relatively young, young age, and then goes bankrupt several times in different kinds of candy operations, mostly selling at retail, but also some kind of wholesale ventures. And so... There was a kind of roller coaster quality to Hershey's career that lots of high-tech entrepreneurs today would relate to, lots of great leaders in history like Abraham Lincoln could relate to. But he learns a lot by failing a number of times, you know, kind of dusting himself off, picking himself up, mm-hmm. and moving on. Right. And and his mother's family actually gets to the point where they're like, we're not lending you anymore. You're <laughs> cutting you off. You just fail all the time. You fail too many times, Milton. And most of the time, he's not selling chocolate, right? He's mostly selling 
sour balls or what today we'd call cough drops or in some cases little nugget, little heart-shaped or flower-shaped nuggets. So again, this is a market that wouldn't be completely recognizable to us. And he turns out initially not to be very good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he ultimately does find success making um, caramels. Why does he get into the chocolate business at all? Because it's not really a business that is big in America at at that time. Not at all. I mean... Many years ago, you and I talked about Howard Schultz bringing Italian coffee to Starbucks and the innovative techniques and marketing, you know, tactics he used to do that. This is not dissimilar from that. Chocolate existed in Europe. It had existed in the United States since the late 1700s, but as a very, very rare kind of luxury item that was dark chocolate, not milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. And it was really the province of a tiny, tiny, small group of people. And Hershey really gets his legs as a candy maker in caramels using fresh milk. And then in the late 19th century, he visits a number of fairs, world's fairs, and discovers chocolate, mostly dark chocolate. But but there are other players from Europe that are beginning to make milk chocolate. And he gets very interested in it. And he buys the equipment of a candy maker, a chocolate maker, at one of these world fairs, kind of buys up the equipment, has it shipped to Pennsylvania where he's making caramels at the Lancaster Caramel Factory and begins experimenting with it. Hmm. And he begins experimenting with milk chocolate. He'd been making and playing with dark chocolate in select ways before that, covering some of his caramels in it, interestingly enough. But this was more of a kind of, you know, a remote sideline for him. And then he begins experimenting with it. And he, like so many people you've captured and, and interviewed and talked about in this program, is like an obsessive tinkerer, right? right? He's tinkering. He's right. trying all these things. He's sure that milk chocolate will be appealing to people and will ultimately right, lead to something much bigger than dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. That's his real, if you will, leap of faith or flash of foresight that, that really defines the business. And he tinkers for literally, Kara, several years, working night and day well, to, to figure out how to make milk chocolate. I, I've got a, to that point, I have got a quote that really struck me from a colleague of his who was part of this tinkering. And here, here's what the guy said. He said, uh, we were both afraid to say we were tired and we wanted to go home. Night after night and Sundays, we even worked the whole night till we were done out. You can't think anymore. You can't do anything. We would work on one experiment till it was done. I mean, you know, you think, oh, it'd be so fun to test milk chocolate. But I mean, like you said, this was an obsessive man and it doesn't actually sound like a lot of fun. No, and it's it's very, it turns out to be very difficult. Logistically, practically, I mean, crushing cocoa beans, which is what he decided to do to actually get the chocolate powder, is difficult physical work that you have to do. It creates all kinds of, you know, powder that gets in your hair and your eyes. Figuring out how to add the milk to chocolate without the milk going rancid. So this is way before the birth of modern preservatives. We don't, he had very few options to try and maintain the freshness of his product. How to mix the butter with the cocoa dust, the chocolate dust is powder is very, very difficult. I mean, this is, it's so messy. It's so unlike, like the way we think of when our mothers or we make brownies and we, you know, we heat the chocolate up and then we add the sugar and we like, all we want to do is lick the batter. This is nothing like that. This Hmm. is messy, smelly, mostly disappointing work. And so the story of Hershey in these critical years at the very end of the 19th century is the story of someone who, just like your quote, 
evidenced will not give up. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nancy Kane, a historian at Harvard Business School who has written about the life of Milton Hershey. You alluded to this before, but Milton Hershey didn't just build this chocolate brand. He built a town to create this brand, which I I don't know how many other entrepreneurs can say that they have done. Why did he build a town literally, and it is there today, right? Hershey, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, it smells like chocolate, right? Yeah. Because one of their main manufacturing facilities is still there, and the streets right. are called, like, you know, Cocoa Way, right? right, right. The streetlights are shaped like Hershey Kisses, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't believe it, except it's true. I've been there many times. I spent a couple of months all together researching this Harvard Business School case I wrote in Milton Hershey. Exactly how meant, I would design a town. Right, right. It's so interesting. <laughs> right? So my first answer is I think he starts out saying, this is brand new. We have to build it. A little bit like Josiah Wedgwood and the China Company back in the 18th century saying, I don't have artisans that know how to make the kind of luxurious China I need to create. I have to create them and the factory to make it because I don't have a template. I don't have a prototype. And I think Hershey starts off that way. So he wants to be near fresh milk. So he needs to be in dairy country. He needs to be near lots of fresh water because you need a ton of water to make chocolate. He needs to be near transportation hubs because he's envisioning early on a national market. He's got to ship some ingredients in like cocoa beans, but he's also then got to ship finished product out. So he's a bunch of prerequisites. And then last but not least, this is an interesting twist on the human element here, which is always important in all of these kind of stories that that you chronicle so insightfully on the show, and that is he actually is from this area, and he wants to settle in his home land, his home country. And he actually wants his parents to get involved in the business because they'd been they'd split up and he wants to bring them back together. So he's got this very interesting, like familial piece to it. So he gets started building a town, building a factory. And pretty soon he's decided, I've got to take care of my workers. I'm going to build not only a manufacturing facility right, and the transportation infrastructure I need, and I'm going to lay a sewer and I'm going to build streets and I'm going to start building worker housing and making it affordable to my workers. And then we're going to need a bank. We're going to need schools. And we're going to need a dance hall. We're going to need an amusement park. We're going to need parks. I think he wants the stability for his workers that his parents never had because his father was such a 'er ne'er-do-well as a provider. And the family was always feast or famine and mostly famine. And so I think there's a part of him that unconsciously but consistently is, I didn't know this kind of stability. My father couldn't find a job for a company like Hershey, with God as my witness, my workers aren't going to have to worry about their housing, their food, their livelihood, their kids' education. And so I think there's a very both idealistic and very personal piece Mm -hmm. to the building of this town that is very much close to his heart, as well as his the business model and kind of you know, his strategy for the company. It's both good things going on, both aspects motivating him. And, and there are, you know, obviously factory towns and mining towns with general stores and stuff that, you know, you can get things on credit. But this just goes so beyond that. I mean, he builds, um, you know, a hotel and golf courses and, like you said, a dancing pavilion, a zoo. I mean, there, there's almost something of Walt Disney in here that he's right. kind of building... I mean, he's building a town, but the hotel he wants built like an Italian villa. He gets really upset that when they're building houses for the workers, they're too similar to each other. And he's like, tear these down. I want everybody's house to be unique. And there's something 
uh, like this plan. I mean, Epcot was supposed to be a planned community, yeah, right, and there there's is. something really, of it in here. That That's a really interesting observation. You know, the title of the case is Candyland, or the one of the subtitles is. And and I think I'd never put it nearly I, as... I should say, you for Harvard Business School, you write cases, right. and you wrote a case Forgive on me, I wrote a case, yeah. right, for our students and yeah. executives to discuss this case as someone who wanted, whether he was calling it that or not, to use his business to move what he considered good forward in the world, mm-hmm. right? So, yes, there's ego. Yes, it turns out he loves building. I mean, the man is kind of a frustrated civil engineer. He throws himself into the building of the town with such verve and such passion. But also, I think there's a sense that capitalism, and he wouldn't have called it that, but business can be a force for good in people's lives, including in workers' lives. Remember, this is the age of strike after strike after strike. I mean, George Pullman will have a terrible strike, right, in the in the middle of the 1890s, right? Andrew Carnegie will have an even more terrible strike with steelworkers in Pittsburgh. This is an age of a great labor unrest as people pour into factories without the benefit of all kinds of OSHA or environmental or other kinds of protections mm-hmm. or union protection right. for workers. So some of what he's doing, I think, is very tactical. What's that expression, the best defense? Defense is a good, fast offense, yeah. right? Build them a wonderful place to work and live, and they will stay loyal. I think there's an aspect of that that's very much part of this. And then there's a part of, I wanted this because I never had it. And then there's a part of, what if business is a tool or a way of moving forward the boulder of social progress? I think all three of those things are operating for this man. When you think about um, Milton Hershey's legacy as a businessman and also even as somebody who changed food and consumption in America and literally what our tastes are, um, what do you think that legacy is? Well, first, I just have to mention one thing as you were talking, I'm saying changed our taste. So at the time he got started in the candy business, Americans ate less than 25 pounds of sugar Complete total per year okay. on average per twenty five pounds today. Per person. Okay. It's about a, between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and seven, right? <laughs> and there's good things about that, and there's some really less good things, as we all know, right. because of the obesity and diabetes epidemic. Big sugar, right? Is Milton Hershey is part of big sugar, mm-hmm. although he never saw that coming, and it wasn't a problem when he got started. But I think his legacy is one. Right again, and my stu- this is what my students take away from it is the possibility of founding a business, not just to make you rich, but to make the world a better place. Secondly, the resilience. He was a very resilient person. I mean, lots of successful entrepreneurs are one-shot wonders, and they make a big impact on the world. And there's you know they're worth our study and conversation and thought for that. But he wasn't a one-shot wonder. He was about the power of dedication a kind of stubbornness to what he was trying to do because it was not easy to move his dream forward of milk chocolate. It was certainly not easy to build this town and stay with it as he did. And a lot of people who get as rich as he did and become as, have the possibilities that he have, lose complete touch with where they came from. And he, interestingly enough, as rich as he was, he lived very frugally all his life, hmm. right? He didn't, he didn't do the Gilded Age robber baron thing at all, although he certainly could have afforded to. So the ability to climb up to the, into the ether in terms of money and power and never lose sight of where you came from and what you owe to others that have less than you, that's an important piece of his legacy, too. Nancy Kane is a historian at Harvard Business School. She is the author, most recently, of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure. Thank you, Kara. Who can take a sunrise? Who can take a sunrise? it with you. Candyman. The candy man.
Candyman can. By the way, despite the town that he built for his factory and for his workers, Milton Hershey did not escape the wave of unionization that swept the country. When his workers wanted to unionize, Hershey couldn't understand why. We've got more about that contentious time on our website, innovationhub.org. And if you're wondering what happened to the Hershey fortune, Milton Hershey gave most of it away to a home for orphan boys. That school exists today. It now accepts both boys and girls, and it is one of the richest schools on a per capita basis in the world. Hey,